So hello and welcome to the HOW Shift podcast. Today we're reflecting on a year of COVID. So it's been just over a year since um, COVID-19 hit our shores in the US and the UK with full force and really upset the everyday way of life that we've grown so accustomed to. So we just wanted to take a minute and kind of share some of our personal reflections. Obviously, a lot has changed in the past 12 months or 365 days. And those of us in the behavioral science team wanted to share some of our reflections on how things have changed. So this is more of our personal thoughts. It's not necessarily official takeaways. There's a lot of behavioral science perspectives on how the pandemic has impacted on society. And At HRW, we've actually done quite a lot of work in COVID-19 research and development, but that's client confidential. So this is really just more of our own reflections on the observations we've had existing as human beings within this society. And another slight caveat of this podcast is that we are not talking about the vaccines. That is probably a podcast in itself. And watch this space because you may see that coming through. But we are interested in your own reflections on your experience as well. So please do uh, mention us on Twitter or respond to this podcast in comments on whichever podcast provider you're listening to. I'm joined today by three of the behavioral scientists in the HOW Shift team. So we've got quite a crowd for this reflection. I'm joined by Ali Dautrick. Hello. Yes, I'm Ali. I am an associate director of behavioral science in our New York office. We also have Rhiannon Phillips. Hello. Lovely to be back. And thank you, Ali. And uh, yeah, looking forward to sharing some reflections with you today. And last but not least, we've got Emma Neville here. I'm a senior behavioral science analyst at HRW based in London. Great. So we've got kind of the US and UK perspectives. um, And we're really looking forward to talking about our reflections on a year of COVID. It really has been a roller coaster, hasn't it? It hasn't happened very smoothly. And in some ways, this year of COVID has been a case study in how our motivation can change over time or how reactive our motivation can be. There are certainly moments during the pandemic when the motivation for behavior change has been really high and other moments where you can feel that that motivation is dipping or that we need a bit more fortification. And as part of that, there's been this conversation about what the role of behavioral fatigue would be, something that was perhaps overblown by politicians initially, but stemmed from a genuine question about what it means to maintain a behavior change over a long period of time, especially when the reward for that behavior change is not particularly immediate. So yeah, when adjusting to something on the scale of COVID-19, it's hard to see how our personal actions that we do have control over map against those larger scale forces or outcomes that we have little control over. And as behavioral scientists, we know how important having a sense of control over things can be for motivation in the long term. I think that's a good point, Emma, too. And just thinking individually and collectively how we're all on a a different time scale and time pace and how we adjust to these things or process um, on an individual level versus as a society or thank God for social media (laughs) spaces where we have these outlets. Absolutely. I know I've been leaning on that certainly a lot more 
just kind of following your train of thought there, Emma, as well. I, I think one of the other things that has presented quite a challenge is inconsistency as well. So we know that um, if you want to support sustained behaviour change, consistency and simplicity are kind of key ingredients of that. Um, and one of the things that we, we definitely have experienced here is sort of a kind of well, yeah, a definite inconsistency in the guidance that's been coming from government. So when we started the the pandemic almost a year ago, um, Boris Johnson, our prime minister, was still walking around hospitals and telling the media how he was shaking hands with patients until, of course, the inevitable happened and he caught COVID. And then constantly changing rules and guidelines as to who you can meet and when you can meet them and where you can meet them. And actually, that rule applies if you're in this county. But if you're one mile over the border, that rule doesn't apply to you. And so all of that's made it very complicated. And I think that's certainly been been a big challenge for sustaining that behaviour change. Yeah, I, I really see what you're saying, Rhiannon, and, and kind of on that note of how consistency can really affect how we take on behaviour change. This has also been a year where the psychology of credibility has been a major theme. I feel like the COVID context has really sharpened tensions that already existed about who is perceived as credible, who's taken as an expert or as an authority on a subject, and ultimately who we believe needs to be taken seriously about a subject. And those tensions have, of course, played out differently in different areas of the world and across social groups. But I certainly feel in my lifetime, I've never seen a situation where the outcome of that negotiation has been so immediate and so tangible on on individual lives. Yeah, I do think there's an interesting piece there too, Emma, where not only is it political leaders, but like you're mentioning, it is those social dynamics and is it friends and family and just the credibility of all the information that we have at hand and that degree to to which we can trust each other and and how we all process that or navigate our lives as we're, you know, navigating Mm. the safety of everyone around. Yeah, exactly. Like, what does it mean if we're being told by the experts to engage in a certain behavior, but we don't see our colleagues or our friends doing that? You know, who do we take to be the credible source in that context? Is it the person we see on TV with the lab coat or is it our friends and family who have a different take? Oh, absolutely. That that blend between politics and social dynamics has just been so interesting this year. I think particularly of the the big divide that emerged around mask wearing um, and actually a question which extends to vaccinations too, but but focusing on mask wearing just for the moment. It, it actually became almost a, a tribal thing, this sense of belonging and which group are you? And it's really interesting to kind of tease apart how, how it ended up in that way. And it sort of draws a lot on social identity theory. And so, like, we know that belonging is, is really important to people, to humans. It's vital to our survival. We wouldn't really be a as uh, as successful as we are as a species if, if we hadn't had that connection to one another. That's the unique thing that sets us apart and why we've survived and thrived in the way that we have. And in order to do that, that means ensuring that you're a, a good teammate, you're, you're a good member of, of your collective. And being out of line with your group can get you in a lot of trouble. And so in a lot of ways, we often work to advantage our team. Um, and uh, and if you think about sort of sports matches, for example, oh, it's a penalty ref. What are you mad? And just kind of you can see how how very differently we can perceive a situation simply by the basis of which group we align with. 
and now we kind of look at look at this scenario with mask wearing and mask wearing ended up crossing the divide from being a purely medical thing into being a, an identity group. It became a symbol as to which party you aligned with. And so this political conversation had crossed these boundaries and turned a medical issue into a moral one. And whose side are you on? And it's at a point in time when we do need to rely so much more heavily on our social networks to get us through these challenging times. So, you know, the risk of isolating yourself from that, it's it's received as a real threat, a real concern. Definitely. And I think a point you brought up earlier, Rhiannon, about just the mixed messages and all the change, or Emma, when you're talking about the credibility of different voices, it's a lot of that inconsistency, too, that led to, I think, some of these things becoming more value-based than factual-based or just thinking about how confusing it was in the beginning when there's a lot of variation in terms, a lot of new terminology where you're hearing about lockdowns and stay-at-home orders or, you know, the ways directives are just changing over time and how that just compounded the uncertainty and certain fears. And I think a lot of people maybe relying more on different values or more emotional-based judgment and decision-making as we're all just trying to figure this out and find our new stability in this whole process. It has been kind of a case study, hasn't it, in some of the ways that meaning is conveyed through terminology in the way that we've had to get used to a lot of new terms and the meaning of those terms has already started to stretch and change depending on your own interpretation and and, and group belonging. So words like your bubble, um, what does it mean to have immunity? What is a lockdown? You know, tears, quarantine, isolation, social distancing. All of those words have new meaning and watching the way in which those meanings stretch and change and impact people's behavior has been really interesting. I've been interested to see the way that people use words like forming a bubble with someone to permit themselves to to see people that maybe are outside of their immediate household or the way that, yeah, people, the, the meaning of lockdown is very different depending on the political climate as well as the country that you're existing within. So my parents in the United States have a very different meaning when they talk about lockdown or stay at home requirements than what we've seen based on the requirements in the UK. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting to hear you reflect on that, Katie, because as well as being a case study of many of the behavioural themes we've already discussed, this linguistically speaking is a case in point for how languages evolve. The thought of using words like tears to describe stages of lockdown or using bubbles to mean something so specific, um, these are the kind of changes in language that do take place with an evolving context and are exactly how human communication changes over time the terms that we use to convey meaning are shifting. And I think as we as we get used to all these different things, I've observed some interesting things about the way that people attempt to find their own kind of interpretation of what it means to do the right things and to keep themselves safe. And something that's really fascinated me over the course of the whole pandemic is the phenomenon of substitution. So for those of you not familiar with the behavioral science terminology, this is basically um, taking a difficult question and substituting an easier one in its stead. So if your question is about how to prevent climate change, you substitute in its place, 
what is something I can do to recycle more at home? So that's an easier question in, in lieu of a large, difficult question. And what I've really observed over the course of the pandemic is that because there's so many different behaviors that we're attempting to get people to adopt, a lot of people are substituting some of the smaller and easier to change behaviors for the larger but potentially more effective behavior changes that are required. So, for example, it is easier to sanitize your hands than it is to actually maintain two meters or six feet of distance from other people. It is easier to wear a mask than it is to actually have social distance and not see people or not go out or not go into enclosed spaces. And obviously there are times where you have to just make those trade-offs because it's it's the only way to reduce the risk of a situation that is otherwise non-optional. But I'm interested to observe that there seems to be a tendency for people to substitute the easier behaviors for the more difficult ones. So for example, a lot of businesses are declaring themselves COVID safe because they have hand sanitizers and they require mask wearing, but it's still an enclosed space. There's still issues with air circulation. They aren't necessarily testing people, for example. So the substitution of the easier behaviors makes people feel like they're doing something. They are sanitizing hands. They're doing all these additional things that they were not doing before, which makes them feel like they're doing something, but they're not doing the larger things that would potentially be more effective in actually reducing the spread of COVID. That also kind of reminds me of uh, moral licensing as well. Um, so moral licensing is is a bias where if you've been particularly good at doing one thing, you will allow yourself to kind of slip back on another. So, uh, for instance, um, oh, I'll, I'll have that slice of chocolate cake. I, I did have salad for lunch. But the thing is, is that the salad doesn't neutralize the cake. You know, you're still eating the cake. It's still taking place. You're just finding a way to justify it to yourself. And that kind of uh, had had sort of similar echoes for me, Katie, sort of watching these behaviours that people are doing, struggling with the reality that we're all living in and saying, well, it, you know, I'm doing these things and I'm working hard in this way. So it doesn't matter quite so much if I just catch up with that one friend and only hu hug them very briefly once and then we stand apart. Yeah, definitely. Rand and Katie, I'd agree with you. And I think one of my, my favourite lines from a behavioural economics perspective in particular is just that reminder that people are really bad intuitive statisticians um, and it's really difficult for us to calculate risk and think about risk in these very objective ways um, and we tend to make these choices uh, or especially as we're figuring out our boundaries and our thresholds and our needs under these unclear guidance and recommendations um, of how to think of sustainably what works in the longer term for us. It's so true and there's a real lack of feedback loops for us to help correct some of these kinds of behaviors as well. Usually when we change our behavior, we can mm -hmm. see the impact of that change quite mm -hmm. concretely or at least in a timely fashion. Like for example, if I start using a new moisturizer, it doesn't take me very long to discover whether that was a desirable behavior change or not. But for the world's most pressing problems right now, whether it's COVID but also climate change, the impact of one individual's actions are pretty abstract and pretty invisible to us. So as behavioral scientists, we know that our brains struggle to compute abstract ideas. We're much more comfortable and able to process concrete ideas. But if you fail to wash your hands and then go to the grocery store and touch every milk bottle in the dairy aisle, you may never see what the impact of that is going to be to others in your community. And certainly you're not going to be able to 
tease apart that individual behavior, the impact that that had on, let's say, hospitalization rate statistics that we see reported on the news. That tangibility of behavioral feedback is really missing when it comes to a problem like coronavirus. Yeah, and I think that kind of lack of ability to do intuitive statistics as well as not being able to see the impact of our decisions, you know, you could make one bad decision or not wear a mask one time and get COVID, or you could not wear a mask the whole time and not get COVID. And that's just the way that statistics work. And also this kind of longer term on the feedback loop, it makes it very difficult for those behavior changes to be sustained. The other challenge is the media environment. It's very difficult. You know, we talked earlier about social media, but it's very difficult to actually get an accurate sense of what other people are doing. And in the media environments, we've seen a lot of examples where people are called out for their adherence or lack of adherence to the social distancing requirements. And those examples become really mentally salient to us because we're seeing how other people are behaving. And that's called social proof, where we see what other people are doing and the actions of other people are very influential on our behavior. And the challenge that we've seen with the course of COVID is that there are examples of people not being adherent to the COVID requirements that are being promoted on the media or are visible on social media. And that can can feel like reverse social proof. So people are saying, well, why should I adhere to the behaviors when most people aren't adhering to the behaviors, when I see so many examples of people not doing the right things. But actually, this is such a false perception often because the majority of people are doing the right things, but it's just not very visible. So every kind of example that the media have put forward of people not adhering to the requirements um, makes people think that more people are actually not adhering. And that just kind of feeds into the availability heuristic as well, I think, Katie. Um, So the availability heuristic is the idea that things that are distinctive in some way, shape or form are much more memorable. They come more easily to mind because they come more easily to mind. We have a tendency to overestimate how frequently it it occurs. So the uh, the rather fabulous example that's often given is, you know, how many shark attacks do you think there are each year and how many people die by a coconut striking them on the head? And most people obviously instinctively say, oh, well, you know, it's got to be the sharks. But it's really not. The number of shark attacks a year are staggeringly low. It's just that when they happen, they're so dramatic. It grabs everyone's attention and the media starts reporting it. And you see it on the news, on the TV and newspapers, on trending on social media, um, primarily because it's so shocking. But the same principle applies here. You know, we we see and we hear and we read about people who aren't adhering to, to the rules that we're all being required to abide by. And it's challenging. You know, none of us voluntarily want to be in lockdown, in isolation, not seeing our friends, not seeing our family. And so when it is so easy to look at sources and say, well, look, they're not doing it, the draw of that becomes really compelling. Yeah, it reminds me of a conversation I had with a friend who was distressed at her impression that lots of people were breaking lockdown. She said, there's so many people in the park, Emma. And I said to her, well, you can't see the people who are not in the park. The ones who are staying home are not the ones that you'll um, see examples of by the very fact that they're at home. That's brilliant, because actually I was having exactly that conversation with my partner as we were going for a walk the other day. There were just so many people in the park. (laughs) Yeah, it's the ones who are not being adherent that are most visible. 
but it's interesting what you said about kind of the voluntary nature of these things. One thing I found very frustrating about this time is that lots of our conversation and, and focus of our attention is on people who are voluntarily breaking lockdown. But there's less conversation about people who are forced to take risks that other people are not by virtue of their circumstance. And one reality of this pandemic is that differences across socioeconomic class, of across race lines and gender lines, the realities that people are living with do have the opportunity to do or not to do are really being thrown into sharp relief by this context. And some of us have more opportunity to keep ourselves safe than others. Um, some people are forced by circumstance to continue to go to work, to continue to take public transport, perhaps they're caring for others, and they're forced to take risks that the more privileged amongst us do not have to. And I've seen less conversation about the injustice of that state of affairs and what that means than I have seen conversation about people taking voluntary risks that's a really interesting point, actually, just kind of looping background to the beginning when we were talking about inconsistencies with the government and behaviour changes that they were endorsing and recommending. And I remember finding it really interesting that they were recommending that people work from home. But if you cannot work from home or your employer says you cannot work from home, then, you know, go to work. And that for me raised a question about, well, what about the integrity of the employer? Because I have a friend who is immunocompromised and her partner could legitimately work from home. But in the early stages of the pandemic was denied that opportunity, was outrightly told, no, you are not permitted to do that. If you do that, then we have to allow everyone to work from home. That's not acceptable. So this person, their manager, their boss um, sidelined the fact that his partner, who he lived with in a one-bedroom flat, was immunocompromised and clinically vulnerable and shielding and forced him to go to work. Otherwise, he would find himself without a job. And the kind of the injustice of that really rankled. Um, mm. And I wonder about other people who have been in kind of circumstances where perhaps they're not quite so fortunate in the objectivity or the compassionate nature of, of their employers. Yeah, that's a really horrible story to hear. I'm very sorry for your friend, but I think also not an uncommon story. Um, it's these differences in kind of privilege or instability or insecurity that mean it's no surprise that the rates of coronavirus really differ across different groups. Yeah, I mean, just kind of bounding off the back of that, though, while there has been a lot of misfortune and grief and loss and isolation and distress, these things are a tenor plenty at the moment. But I've also been struck that actually, you know, if we kind of go for the sunny side up and the glass half full, it's there have been positives that have kind of come out of this for me. Um, certainly, I've been in more regular contact, funnily enough, um, with uh, a close network of my friends because um, physically we live many miles away. And so not being able to regroup every few months has meant that we've kind of initiated a regular pub quiz on a Tuesday night. And so we all get online on Zoom and we all see each other and have a catch up. And, and that kind of frequency of contact was actually really, really valued and sort of on a more personal level as well. 
my mum needed some assistance she had to shield and lives uh, in a city 60 miles away from me so I wasn't able to do her food shopping and I was really struggling to work out some kind of plan where I would be able to help her you know get the supplies that she needs without her having to go out and get them and I just popped a quick message on Facebook and honest to god I was nearly brought to tears by how many friends messaged me so quickly all offering support you know some of them who Obviously, at one point in our lives, we'd been very close or quite close. But through the passage of time, you know, our lives had gone in different directions. Didn't matter. I asked for help and it came. <laughs> it was it was really, really touching. Um, so, yeah, I had some good friends on a fortnightly basis, dropping off regular food shops outside my mum's front door, um, making sure that that distancing was in place. And yeah, I yeah, I, I feel very, very heartwarming. <laughs> Yeah, that's a really nice story. I mean, I definitely feel that there has been a lot of a community feeling throughout much of this pandemic. I don't know if or you three were involved in um, mutual aid groups that popped up when the pandemic first reached our shores. In the UK, lots of networks of local people banded together to collect groceries for people nearby who were forced to self-isolate or run errands or do tasks for people. Sometimes it was collecting people's medication from pharmacies and responding to needs of the community completely free of charge. I've been texting and working with neighbours that I had never spoken to before as a result of those mutual aid networks and the rallying together of a kind of local community. Yeah, I mean, we had a WhatsApp group in our street to kind of help one another out and just be in touch. And that's been really nice because we've managed to get to know a lot more people in our street and yet, like you say, I'm neighbours that we never spoke to. The other thing that I've seen as a really positive thing coming out of the pandemic is just more of a a recognition of how we exist as a social species and how how important mental health is. The kind of broader discussions that this pandemic has started or encouraged around mental health and around how isolation and loneliness and community are so important has been really beneficial, you know, speaking about the potential of uh, children or adolescents missing school and how that's impacting on their mental health and just the broader discourse that's come out of this about how people are coping and how mental health has been impacted by all of these changes, I think is an important dialogue. And I'm glad that it's taking place so much more publicly and that there's much greater appreciation of the impact that it's having on mental health. Yeah, absolutely. I I still really strongly feel that mental health is um, a massively underserved and underrecognized area. And there is still so much stigma attached to it fundamentally. And I think the headway that we've been making through the pandemic on that with people sort of being able to feel that they can speak up, they can speak out, they can reach out and say, hey, guys, I'm, I'm really not doing so good here and have people respond to that positively. You know, just just kind of seeing that it is not uncommon and it is not unusual. In fact, if anything, it's part of being human. And so, yeah, seeing seeing how much uh, how much more recognition and support and roads that are being made into acceptance of that um, has been really encouraging. I think I quite agree. 
Well, we're not out of the woods yet, but I think uh, the tide is turning against the COVID-19 pandemic with the increase in vaccination. So we will see, watch the space for how it's going. Again, as we said at the beginning of the podcast, we'd really welcome engagement from our listeners about what they've found as some of the biggest changes they've observed across the pandemic or any responses to some of the observations, kind of personal observations of how it's impacted us, impacted the people around us. So do feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or respond in comments on your listening platform. But um, until next time, that's bye-bye from us. 